As, um, as I was preaching through Leviticus uh, last year, um, we pretty much spent uh, most of the year in Leviticus, and um, we came across a few passages, especially near the end, um, that address various, uh, various laws concerning the family. And I don't know if you remember this or not, I, I think I said during one or two of the sermons that we should, uh, we should make a note to come back and, and address those things in a little bit further detail from other passages of Scripture uh, when we finish our study of Leviticus. And, um, about a month or so ago, we, we wrapped up that book, and so it's a good time to come back to this topic. Um, so as I said earlier in the new year, we're going to begin a, a study of both of the letters of Thessalonians, so First and Second Thessalonians, and then follow that by a walk through John's Revelation. Um, and these things, in addition to the, the Sunday school that I've been teaching before vacation, um, are designed to push us toward hope. In fact, in Sunday school, we've been talking about heaven and hell and hope, and we've, we've really just got to hell, <laughs> and uh, we haven't gotten into heaven yet, and hope hopefully is kind of mixed in there, but we're getting there. All of this is designed to push us toward hope, because if we spend the majority of our time um, on Fox News or CNN or scrolling through social media, we might conclude that we live in hopeless times. Or worse, we might conclude that we put our hope, or what little hope we have, in a king to deliver us from the tyranny of the opposition, some politician. Our hope is found in some new politician. And then we wonder, when we come to church or we start reading the Bible, we wonder how the ancients could be so silly as to worship their kings. But we're really close to that as a society now. But the Apostle Paul gave this benediction in Romans chapter 15, verse 13. He said this. He said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, <clears throat> so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. My, my prayer for us as a church is that we would be a people who abound in hope, the hope of Jesus Christ, because a hopeful people are a joyful people and a peaceful people. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And under Christ, there is, or, or I should say maybe um, as Christians, there's nothing in this world that gives us more joy, apart from not speaking about our own salvation. There's nothing in this world that gives us more joy or more heartache than family, right? We, we all know this. Now let's zoom out here just a little bit. These days, people are asking um, some form of this question. So people in our society are asking some form of this question. As a nation or as a society, how did we get here? This past Tuesday, um, on, his, on his podcast, The Briefing, 
Al Mohler, who's the president of uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, he, he said this. He said, let this sink in. New research shows the more money a woman makes, the less likely she is to get married and have children. Then he says, let this data point sink in with you. It comes down to this. The more wealthy a man is, the more likely he is to be married. The more wealthy a woman is, the less likely she is to be married. Accordingly, the more wealthy a man is, the more likely he is to be a father. The more wealthy a woman is, the less likely she is to be a mother. And then he said this. He said, now for Christians, there could hardly be a more significant set of statistics than these because we understand that the family is the center of human civilization. Marriage and the family are the foundations of the entire culture. And what we're looking at here is a development that is entirely new in human history. Nothing like this has happened in the past. Nothing like this could have happened in the past. He says, you look at it, and the numbers tell us that what, that what we have is a fall off in marriage and a fall off in the birth rate in this country, both of which are very significant. And we have entire sectors of the society that are effectively giving up on marriage. They're just not marrying. But there's something else that's counterintuitive, he says. And it's the fact that where you look at stability in this country, you look at marital stability, family stability. And you're actually looking these days at a greater stability than had been the case in the past. And then he goes on to speak about the, the concept of a, of a family wage as opposed to just simply paying someone a, a salary. So, so in other words, he's, he's going to talk here about uh, a father, paying a father enough to support his family. He says, if you have mom and dad in the workforce then the companies are in the position of saying, see, we don't have to pay a family wage. We can actually reduce the investment in every one of these employees because it's not the expectation of all the employees that the, that the fathers, the husbands, are the head of the families. Now they're just simply employees. Increasingly, he says, both men and women, and thus the family recedes into the background. That's a big development in this country that no one actually planned in one sense, and it's had devastating consequences on the family. The family's now an afterthought. Instead of companies paying a family wage, you have employees who might be, he says the expectation would be both mom and dad, and you hope that together they make enough to support the family. But what about the family? Who's taking care of them? Who's taking care of the children? Who's taking care of the rest of them? Well, that turns out to not be a very high social value. The entire article um, is worth looking up and reading or listening to. The world around us is falling apart. And nowhere is this more glaringly obvious than in families. Now, I want to acknowledge right here at the outset that most of us in this room have a, <laughs> a messed up family in one way or another. Uh, we have dysfunction in our lives in one way or another. Um, might be in our immediate family, might be in our extended family. But our, in our families here, we have divorce, we have single parenthood, we have broken and blended families, actually all of those things are applicable in my extended family with my parents and my siblings. I know it is for many of us too. 
We also have family members in jail or addicted to one substance or another. I'm still talking about my own extended family. Some of us have abuse in our backgrounds. Some physical abuse, some sexual abuse, some verbal abuse. This list could go on, right? And some of us, some of us in here come from a long line of faithful Christians. And for that, we praise God. Others of us in here are first-generation believers. We all carry a variety of baggage, for lack of a better term, into our own families and and into the church. So if you're a first-generation Christian, for example, you have the opportunity to change the trajectory of your family, your family tree. Through Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going, to be, you're going to set your family on a trajectory that is completely different from the, from the generation before you. And so what would it be like for your children, your grandchildren, to not experience the same kinds of, of family, even generational sins that you saw? What would it be like if your children and grandchildren were not shackled with the same kind of stupid, burdensome debt that so many of us have shackled ourselves with? Or or how would we impact our community? Think of this statement. How would we impact our community if we taught our children the high calling of a homemaker? What would it look like for Redemption Bible Church to raise up a generation behind us who would hold marriage in honor among all, to refer to Hebrews 13, who always see children as a blessing from God, who teach the Lord's commands and and ordinances diligently to our own children, I'll tell you what that would look like. It would look completely countercultural. It would look completely nothing like the world. And I would say that, that in these ways, we have to have a, a pioneer spirit. We need to be trailblazers. See, the world around us is falling apart. The family is under attack on all fronts. Euthanasia is increasingly being promoted and normalized. But it didn't start there. It started with the state saying something along the lines of, let us care for your aged parents. We'll build them a home. And it moved to, wouldn't it be more compassionate to just end their suffering? They should be able to face death with dignity. At our hand, of course. And so instead of, instead of burdening your own children with, with our, uh, our end-of-life care, we burden the system. We burdened somebody else's kids, essentially. And the same goes for education. We've let the state take the lead in setting the standard of what our kids believe. And the church has bought into all of this. Churches, churches often, they have, they have separate age-appropriate worship services, so-called age-appropriate worship services. So in many cases, the family isn't even together at any point on a Sunday. Why? Because even in the church, we let the experts educate our kids. These things should not be. Consider that in Ezra's day, 
when the exiles were returning to the promised land and repenting uh, for their sin, Ezra chapter 10 verse 1 says this, while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel for the people wept bitterly. And so we're going to commit to looking at these things from the scriptures for the month of December. This is a lifetime commitment. <laughs> but for the month of December specifically. And we're going to use the book of Proverbs as our starting point. Because if there's one thing that we and our families need, it is wisdom. Right? Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. I'm going to read this. This is going to be our base text today. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast to my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget. Do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Let's just stop and pray right here. Father, I pray that you would, that you would give us wisdom today. What we don't know, I pray that you would teach us. What we need, I pray that you would give us, Lord. That your name might be praised. I pray, Lord that you would use your word to change our hearts and minds, that we in turn might change our families, might even change our community. Lord, we trust in you. We know that the Spirit is working. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me ask you this question. How many specific people in your life Maybe in your history, the, the life, your life history, how many, how many specific people do you credit with passing on wisdom to you? So for me, it was a couple of high school teachers, my history teacher and my um, homeroom teacher, I guess. My, she taught me accounting, um, which I didn't pick up very well. Mrs. Dumas and Mrs. McMeachin. It was also an elder at my first ministry post, Brent Howland who many of you know. And then there were the pastors, John Spring and Farrell Stauffer, and my grandparents, Wilbur and Rachel Kidder. We look to people like this. Maybe you can think of your own list of people, right? Teachers, pastors, elders, grandparents. We look to people like this, even from a variety of age groups, we look to them for their wisdom in, in all kinds of different areas of life. Think of it like this. Even as we think sort of generationally for a moment, the wisdom that was passed down from the generation who lived through the Great Depression, 
or, or who lived fighting in World War II, the wisdom that's passed down from those generations is going to be a little bit different from the generation who came of age during the Clinton administration, right? <laughs> the wisdom is going to be different. As we look at these verses here from Proverbs 4, the, the chain of tradition linking the wisdom of the generations is the basic theme of this passage. In fact, the idea of passing on wisdom from, from parent to child, from father to son, is throughout the Proverbs, actually. But here, especially in the early chapters of Proverbs, but here it's, it's a bit deeper than simply parent to child or father to son. It's actually the father passing on the grandfather's wisdom to his son. And in these verses, he not only lists, uh, we could put it this way, he not only lists his parents on his resume, so to speak, but he also credits them with, with providing him uh, with a life that, that valued and even stressed wisdom. He recommends this for, for all children, for all families. And by implication, he encourages them to pass on this tradition. To, to exemplify, to, to teach their own children this kind of, of wisdom and to continue, at, at, least, at least begin this family tradition. Pass these things on. Make this your heritage. To put it another way, this passage displays wise parenting at work. But notice how this father speaks. He speaks with authority. Look at just the first two verses. He says, Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. Now, in Proverbs, there are about 10, um, we could call them lectures or lessons, uh, that are all kind of framed as a, as a father instructing a son. So they're similar to this. Um, and this is actually, there's about 10 of them, and this is the, the fifth one. And so consider in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, he begins the, the first lecture like this. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. You can hear echoes of this instruction in chapter 1. Another good example is in chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. It says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Each time the father says something, something akin to, listen up son, I've got some things to say. Each time he speaks with a gentle fatherly authority. Right? My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. And that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. But here in, the, in this portion of chapter 4, there's a slight difference. The speaker here seems to broaden his scope. He says, hear, O sons, a father's instruction." These opening verses here, this, just, this actually just rings with authority. 
so much so that it, it's almost jarring to modern readers. Um, in fact, we often bristle when we hear the word authority. I fought authority and authority always wins, right? We bristle when we hear the word authority. We're part of a generation of whom it has been said, ours is the first generation of history, in history, that does not know how to raise its young. And we don't like authority. We don't want anybody to tell us how to do it either. Especially in the decades following World War II, it became fashionable to doubt traditional wisdom, to, to derive our approaches to child-rearing our approaches to training up our children, uh, to, uh, to shift to, to the so-called experts who, who were influenced by the therapeutic methods of psychology and also happen to hold the Bible in contempt. Ours is a generation that turns over both its old and its young to institutions, often so that we can pursue our own selfish desires. Now, I want to be very careful here. Because for most of us in this room, a whole bunch of us in this room, that's not true, right? This is our generation, but that stuff isn't true. We have, in fact, we have public school teachers here as a part of this church who are serving, if I could put it this way, serving behind enemy lines on the mission field. We are grateful for them, and we want to pray for them regularly. Additionally, some of us in here have needed to put our elderly parents into care for their own health, for their own safety. But ours is a world that is increasingly just simply pushing both old and young aside in order to pursue the things of this world. And sometimes people will say to me or people in my position, and what right do you have, pastor, to talk to me about that? This speaks as one with authority. These are not the words of a, of a timid father or teacher. The first lecture in chapter 1 begins like this. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. As I said in chapter 4, the lecture is, is more general, right? He addresses sons. In fact, sons there. Here, O oh sons, a father's instruction. Sons is, is uniquely plural in all of these lectures. This is the only one, I think, that is, that is plural. The picture is of, a, is of a classroom full of students. Although the context actually makes sense that it could be um, uh, the father speaking to his descendants, to a whole line of descendants. A family lineage. Here, O oh sons, could be something like, listen up, O oh descendants. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so forth. This is a heritage that he is passing on. And, it, and it's clear that it's been passed down to him. Notice that there are four, um, in just these first couple of verses, there are four kind of synonyms, or at least four terms, that all point to the same thing. So instruction, insight, precepts, and teaching. Those four terms, you may have some synonyms of those, but instruction, insight, precepts, and teaching. Those first two, instruction and insight, are specifically connected to wisdom, whereas precepts and teaching 
both refer to law and doctrine, okay? So we could say it like this. If we were going to kind of put this in our own words, we might say, listen carefully to your father's wisdom because this good law serves the best interest of this family for generations to come. Hold fast to this teaching. This has echoes of what is known as the Shema. Shema Israel. <laughs> Shema means hear, listen. Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be its frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. See, this, this doctrine, these precepts, this isn't, simply a, this isn't just simply about a, a father teaching his, his, tongue, his son how to tie a tie or grill a steak. All, all things that it's fine for a father to do. In fact, I would say, go for it. I've had to show grown men how to tie ties before. Teach your sons how to tie a tie. It's okay. I know you don't like wearing ties. I don't care if you wear a tie or not. That's fine. Sorry, I'm getting off subject. <laughs> this is about a father's duty to teach his sons God's word. That's what this is about. Even, even by modeling it. it this, this, is, this is Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's what this is about. Or, or what he says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, the generations that follow you. We could say, if we were applying this to a father, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to your faithful sons who will be able to teach their sons also. Can you hear the authority in these verses? Parents and grandparents have the authority to pass down the, the teachings of Scripture to the next generations. The world, the world is increasingly telling you that you do not have that kind of authority. The world is increasingly telling you that you do not have that kind of authority, but you do. And even more than just the authority, you actually have the responsibility to exercise that authority and to do so in a just and loving manner. Look at his motivation, verses 3 and 4, his motivation. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, let your heart hold fast my words, keep my commandments and live. This, this is... This is more than just nostalgia or, or precious memories, right? At the heart of this is the right of one generation to impose instruction, even in the form of, of like commands and admonitions, to impose instruction onto their children, onto the younger generations. And we, we, need, to, we need to very carefully and purposefully see the roles and the responsibilities of the parents here in Proverbs. First, the father is not 
passive. Do you see that? Not only does he speak with authority, he doesn't put the newspaper down and say, listen to your mother, and put the newspaper back up. That's not what's happening here. He's active. He's taking an active role in instructing. In fact, the grandfather, verse 4, he taught me. He said to me, this grandfather, he understood and he took seriously the commands of the Shema. Not to mention Paul's command, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's also clear that not only is dad active in these things, but mom is there and she's also active. Remember, I, I, it, he already said back in chapter one, I, I read this already, but he said, forsake not your mother's teaching. He uses the word tender here in verse 3. When I was um, a son with my father, tender, at least the ESV translates that, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother. That doesn't mean fragile. I mean, it can mean fragile, but it doesn't just simply mean fragile. It means pliable, impressionable, teachable. This is especially true. We know this. This is especially true when they're young when they're sitting on mom's knee, right? Now we understand that dad is likely off working during the day and mom will likely be spending more time with the kids, especially when they're young. But fathers are responsible. Kids need their dads. They need a dad to model Christ-likeness. When I was thinking about this, I thought that I should say, sons need their dads, but so don't daughters. And I would say in these day and age, both especially need their dads. Sons and daughters, children need their dads. They need dad to model Christ-likeness. They need to see dad love mom as Christ loves the church, serves her. They need to hear dad teaching them God's word by just reading it to them. Go on this afternoon and read Luke 3. It's probably a tough one because it's got all the genealogies, but you can do it. Go home this afternoon and with your family, just read Luke 3. Read a chapter a day. It's five minutes. They need to hear you read God's word. They need to know. So we could say something like this. Um, Boys these days need to know how to field dress a deer, change a tire, etc., etc. Sure, but they need to be taught how to pray. They need to be taught how to read God's word by dad. And dads of younger kids, listen to this. You are doing this now for your grandchildren. You're not just simply doing this for your kids, you're doing this for your grandchildren. It's a perspective I didn't have a couple years ago. <laughs> it doesn't always feel like it. it. Seems like a long way off, but trust me. Put in the work early. Put in the hard work early and it will pay off high dividends in the end. What did this grandfather here teach? What family heritage did, did this grandfather pass down? Well, we're getting kind of in the middle of verse 4. 
really all the way through the, the end of chapter, uh, verse 9, is a quote. The whole thing is a quote. And, and the words move, in fact, verse 4 kind of summarizes. It, it moves from receiving the teaching. He says, let your heart hold fast to my words. So receive it, retain the teaching. He says, keep my commandments. And then finally, the, the final reward, and live. <laughs> How many of us dads have said that to our kids before? Do what I say and live. <laughs> That's shorthand, actually, for what he said back in chapter 3, verse 4. He said, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And when we're talking about increasing in godly wisdom, that statement is undeniably true. This is our motivation. Find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. And then finally we come to his admonition. Really, this is verses 5. It begins in the middle of verse 4, but really it's verses 5 through 9. Let me read these again. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Now the key word um, in these verses here is that word that's, that's repeated four times, four or maybe even five times, get, get, get wisdom, get insight, get wisdom, get insight. Whatever you get, get wisdom. It's actually sometimes translated in, in other places even as buy, like B-U-Y, like purchase, get wisdom, purchase with, or acquire the idea behind this is however you can, get wisdom. And the picture of these verses, I don't know if you caught this, it suddenly takes sort of a, a human element, even a, even a romantic element, so to speak. Um, the picture here is, is really of, of, a, of a groom acquiring a bride by paying a dowry or a bride price. What the author is saying is this, no matter the cost, whatever it takes, get wisdom, get her, get her. Jesus equated this, this kind of thinking with salvation and, and he illustrated it like this. He said in, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 45 and 46, Jesus taught this. He said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's the idea behind this. Whatever it takes, get that. Get wisdom, get insight. What are you willing to, get, to give up in order to get wisdom? What are you willing to do in order to acquire wisdom and, and be able to pass it on as a family heritage? Too many of us are like I was. Um, we wait until our kids start asking us real questions before we try to know the answers. <laughs> uh, we wait until we're married and the kids are getting to be school age before we can start really truly searching the scriptures and working to understand the teachings uh, and the ways of the Lord. But I would say this, do it now. Do it now. Get it. Get wisdom. 
And remember, grandpa here is passing on wisdom. Verse five again, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. And the cost of wisdom? What is the cost? Well, it's everything. James tells us in James chapter one, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. Humble prayer, that's the cost. And if you get wisdom, and if you don't forget or forsake what you've learned, then verse six tells us what wisdom will do in return. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. Now, this is the point in the sermon where the, the outline kind of gets a little bit blurry because uh, point, point one was the authority, point two was the motivation, and now we're on to admonition. But motivation and admonition all kind of get mixed together here. Um, here's what it is. Marry wisdom and she will protect you. Marry yourself to wisdom and she will protect you. You know how true that is? Do you know how many of us in here wish that we could go back and, and even just have an ounce of the wisdom that we have now that we wish we had when we were 16, 18, 20, 30, 49, If we had just a little bit of the wisdom that we have now that would protect us from doing that one stupid, stupid thing that we did when we were younger. But this isn't, this isn't a sermon about making better decisions. This isn't a sermon about make better choices. I'm not here saying, uh, be smart. Make good choices in life. I know the pronouns in here are a little bit confusing, but does verse 6 sound familiar? Do the verbs in verse 6, the verbs of forsaking or not forsaking, the verb keep, love, guard, does that remind you of anything else? Does that remind you, I should ask it this way, of anyone else? Clearly, wisdom throughout the book of Proverbs is, is sort of personified as a, as a lady all, all through uh, Proverbs. Maybe we could even say, picture it this way, as a grandma, right? All through the book of Proverbs. But Jesus is actually the one who is the fulfillment of all of this. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says this, and because of him, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The wisdom that we're talking about, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. The wisdom that we're talking about, the wisdom that I am talking about as your pastor, is not just make better choices. The wisdom there is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. This has been Christ all along. All of the promises of God find their yes in Him. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That promise there, verse 6, do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. 
Wisdom is Jesus Christ. He will not forsake you. He will keep you. He will love you. And He will guard you. So in all of this, we're talking about wisdom as opposed to foolishness with Jesus being the fulfillment of all wisdom. Get wisdom, get Jesus, and you will be safe. And then look, he cycles back around to this in in verse 7. He says, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom, and whatever you get, get insight. The emphasis, it's so clear in this, his emphasis. The beginning of wisdom, the chiefest thing, the starting point of wisdom. Do you want wisdom? The godly old grandfather asked his grandkids, do you want wisdom? Come and get it. That's what he's saying. Do you want to know wisdom? Do you want to know godliness? Do you want to know Christ? Spend time with the seniors in this church. Ask them about life. Ask them about faith. Let them show you their spiritual calluses. Ask the widow about her husband. Ask to read the Bible together. Whatever you get, get wisdom. We have extended families in here. And that that list is growing, especially as you guys marry each other. We have extended families. Get wisdom. Go talk to them. For those of us in here who have been around the block, Take the babies. Take them from those boys over there that hold them all the time. (laughs) Take the babies. Pray over the kids in this church. Pray over them. While you're at it, pray over them. Pray for those boys and girls over there. Sorry. I'm not sorry at all. Pray over them. Pray for them. Getting wisdom is long unglamorous work. But look at the benefits that you will receive if you put in the work. Verses 8 and 9. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will put on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. You see that graceful garland and and that beautiful crown? What comes with a crown? What comes with a crown? Authority, right? That's where we started. Authority gives you the ability to pass on your wisdom. One day, trust me, one day you will wake up a grandpa. Or grandma, you know. Probably. One day you'll wake up with a little more gray. And suddenly you'll ask yourself, do I have wisdom? Do I need to pass this down? Do I have authority to do that? Authority gives you the the ability to pass on your wisdom. If you're not already, there's a huge likelihood that you will be a grandparent one day or uh, or uncle. And if not physically, then at least spiritually within the church. Look around, Jesus said. Here are my mother and brothers and sisters, right? So start now. Get wisdom. 
change the entire trajectory of your family tree. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Start here. Joel chapter 2, verse 32 says this, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Get wisdom? Call upon the name of the Lord. The promise is that you will be saved. And the Lord will give you wisdom. Let's pray. Father, as we approach the table, one of the things that it should do is remind us of this long tradition of Christians, the church, gathering together each Lord's Day to hear from the wisdom of Scripture, the wisdom that is Jesus Christ, to eat and drink and so proclaim the death of Jesus Christ, the beginning of wisdom. Father, as we come to the table, as we eat and drink and so proclaim the Lord's death until He returns, I pray that we would leave here today considering these things, how we are able to get wisdom, to search the Scriptures and see if these things are true that we might be able to, to hold fast to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that we would teach our children to hold fast, that we would pass on to our children, to those around us, to those sitting at the table with us, even at lunch today, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Lord, I am so thankful for those who have gone before us, those who are here who are older than us. Lord, I am so thankful for a long line of faithfulness, family faithfulness, I'm thankful that you have stepped in and saved so many families, that you have brought us together. I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, one, that we would be united, that we would love one another and so um, encourage one another, that we would help one another, that the older women would teach the younger women, that that the older men would teach the younger men, Lord, that we would pass on the wisdom of Christianity, the wisdom of Christ from generation to generation. I'm thankful for the kids in this church. I'm thankful for the teenagers in this church. I'm thankful for the young parents, for the uh, not-so-young parents, for the grandparents. Lord, I am so thankful for the people of this church, and we know that you are working. I pray that as we come again, as we come to the table, Lord, we rejoice that you have sent your Son, that we don't have to look to the wisdom of this world which is just foolishness but that we can look to the wisdom of jesus christ for salvation we pray these things in jesus name amen